Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-447 of the Run Run Live podcast. You might hear a little bit of a crow cawing outside. There's uh, The sun just came out, it's been raining all day, but uh, the crows are making a lot of noise out there for some reason. They're having fun in the apocalypse. Here we are, middle of January, and I've got a lot to talk about today, which is good because... One of the things that bothers me about house arrest is that I don't get enough input, enough experiential experiences. I'm not out traveling around and running races, so I have less input and therefore less to talk about. So I had to take a week off from running last week. I managed to give myself an infected toe. So I have something to talk about. Yeah, I'll talk about that infected toe in section one. <laughs> and don't worry, it's better now. I went out for an hour in the trails yesterday and it seems okay. Um, about a week into a course of antibiotics and that seems to have cleared it up pretty well. So the good news is, is that I'm not going to die a slow, painful death from gangrene. Uh, the bad news is I lost a week of training and I had to take a course of antibiotics. And I don't like antibiotics. I don't like taking them. They wipe out all that helpful and friendly bacteria in your body, as well as the cantankerous buggers living in your cuticles. So the antibiotics, they mess up my digestion, especially with my diet, which includes a lot of uh, roughage. It basically gives me the digestive system of a Canadian goose. And it also compounds the dry skin that I get this time of year for some reason. So I think in general, we underestimate all the helpful things that a community of symbiotic bacteria does for you. And when you take the antibiotics, it nukes all those out. And you're on your own. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Sarb. I've known Dr. Sarb for many years from the online running community. He's a New Zealand-based psychologist and is just now putting out a book called Steady about how to survive in the COVID. And the links uh, to that book will be in the show notes. 
I had some tech problems, and I had to cut him short on the interview. Uh, so he, I had him send me a preamble, uh, which I'll stick on the front of the interview. You can listen to that. And by the way, why in the world is New Zealand called New Zealand? Doesn't that imply there's an old Zealand? But isn't this a British colony? Zealand isn't very British, is it? No. So in fact, there is an old Zealand. And it's a little bit north of Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. The first people to, quote-unquote, discover what would become New Zealand, they were Dutch. Specifically, a dude named Abel Tasman. Yep, that's how you get Tasmania. And at the time, he thought he had run into Argentina. His GPS must not have been charged. Anyhow, subsequently, the Dutch thought, hey... This place is made up of a bunch of islands, like Zealand is, which in Old Dutch means sea land, and so you have New Zealand. Got it? All right, you learn something new every day here, huh? So in section two, I will talk a little bit about living life like it's uh, improvisational art or performance art, and at the risk here of being a the crazy old et Etymologist, not entomologist, that's bugs. Etymologist is words. That's Ollie shaking himself out on the floor. He's wondering who I'm talking to. Good boy. Compassion. I want you to think about the word compassion. It's a good old Latin word. The first bit means with, the second bit means suffering. So having compassion means the ability to understand and feel another's pain and suffering. With suffering. At this point, most writers will go off on a screed about how you have to suffer for your art, suffer for what you want, and how passion is the ability to suffer for a goal. So I'm not going to do that, although that's a great screed, and I've probably done it before. It's very biblical, has the smell of ancient empires and codes of honor to it. It's unsurprising it's Roman in origin, right? So I'm going to talk about having compassion for someone else. Understanding and appreciating someone else's suffering. If you think about anyone you know, anyone you live with, work with, picture somebody. To some extent, they are all suffering, whether or not they show it. And the ones that are suffering the most are the ones that are the hardest to have empathy for. Because they're typically externalizing that suffering in ways that are negative. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with them to have compassion. It doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be held accountable. It means you understand their suffering. And this is important because people who are suffering, like I said, they tend to externalize that suffering. They lash out. They act out. Because it is in our nature to suffer. It is in our nature to be passionate. It makes us human. Passion, by its nature, is irreconcilable with the norm. Passionate people are outliers in one way or another. If you can bring yourself to look for the suffering behind another's actions, it will help you understand them. It will help your own suffering because it will allow you to understand Understanding converts emotion to reason. And with that reason, you're in a better position to deal with those who are suffering. But compassion also means celebrating those who are achieving happiness. 
It's part of empathy and growth. When was the last time you told someone you were happy for them? Try saying this in a moment of contemplation while visualizing someone you know who has achieved something that has made them happy. Because empathy for others, for others' happiness, begets joy in yourself. Try saying this. May I have appreciation for my own joy. May my happiness grow. And notice how that makes you feel and how the two are intertwined. Other people's happiness and your own happiness. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The infected toe. Common toe problems and remedies. I come to you today with some sage advice. Don't Google infected toe unless you are prepared to be unsettled. But that being said, some people do like those videos. Those of you who have been hanging around with me for a while know that I am an unrelenting victim of Earth's ironies and life-imitating art. And last week, after my long run in the slush, the big toe of my right foot started to be sore. By midweek, it was obvious that it was infected. It was swollen. It hurt like hell. By Saturday, I was at the clinic getting some antibiotics. It's a bit ironic. The ironic part is because one of my characters in my new serial podcast about the apocalypse has an infected toe. I've never had an infected toe. I've lost that toenail many times, but I've never had it get infected. But foot problems in general are the bane of runners. Foot problems are super frustrating because even if you're fit and ready to go otherwise, ready to compete, ready to train, a simple foot problem can knock you, well, off your feet. Infected toenails are not very common in runners. Infected toenails tend to be much more common in the general populace. They are usually due to an ingrown nail caused by bad footwear choices or by degenerative diseases like diabetes, where there are circulation problems in the feet, and these cause the conditions favorable for infections. When the toe gets infected, what's happening is that a bacteria gets into the toe and starts to spread from that, well, toehold. The diseases or the ingrown nail, they could create the, an irritation and the, those create the conditions that allow that bacteria to get in and get started. In my case, it was just the, the wet shoes. And you can see it, how running long distance in wet shoes and slippery conditions, it causes the snow to get smashed into the side of the shoe and that caused the nail to get a little irritated in the corner and that gave the bacteria the opportunity it probably didn't help that those are old shoes with six, 700 miles on them that got soaked repeatedly through the last month. Yeah, they probably had bacteria in them already from being wet all the time. I basically made them into Hoka Speed Goat versions of a Petri dish. Then, of course, I ran when I knew the toe was already irritated. So part of this is my physiology. Not psychology, physiology. I'm sure part of it's my psychology as well. 
but I have inherited a big toe. My big toe extends much longer than all the other toes. And as the leader of the pack, it takes all the abuse. I'm also right side dominant, meaning that my right foot is slightly longer than my left, which allows me to use one of my favorite words, which is bilaterally symmetric. Your bodies are not bilaterally symmetric. The sides are different sizes. Yeah, bilaterally symmetric. The net result is that most shoe people have tried to move me up a half a size. But having tried running in a half size bigger shoe, I don't like it at all. It feels like they are floppy clown shoes. And I would rather have shoes that fit and let that big toe rub a little because I'm already size 12 and that's big enough. That's a big enough shoe. I know that at some point in training for an ultra distance race, I'm going to lose that toenail. (laughs) I try taping it, but the repetitive catching eventually does it in. But this is the first time it has become infected. I mean, what do people do to cure an infected toe? Well, it really depends on what the cause is. With me, there's no underlying problem. Except that I'm a guy who runs two hours in the slush in old shoes when my toes are already sore. Other than that, <laughs> there's, there's no ingrown nail or disease or anything. I get a course of antibiotics, which I don't like. But better to rebuild my biome than to get blood poisoning or lose the dough. So for people who have an underlying problem, like an impacted or ingrown toenail, the doctor has to cut that part of the toenail out, and then the area is cleaned up with antibacterial stuff, and then they get the antibiotics. I get off easy. I get to take some pills and soak my foot in warm water and Epsom salts. There's an old English saying that goes something like, for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost, for the want of a shoe, the horse was lost, and for the want of a horse, the battle was lost. You know, you can't run without your feet. <laughs> so what are, your lesson, what are the lessons learned here? What can we take away from this? Well, one is keep your shoes dry and clean. I'm really bad at this, but I'm going to look into some better ways. And frankly, I thought that with the cold, dry weather this time of year, my shoes would just dry quickly and didn't really put much thought into it. But one of the things you can do with your wet shoes is to pull out the orthotics or the insoles when they're wet and let those dry separately. Um, It's also good to loosen up the laces a little bit and let the air in. Another thing you can do is stuff those wet shoes with newspapers or paper towels, right? After you take the insoles and and loosen them up a bit. Now, some people would say throw them in the dryer, but I would not recommend putting your shoes in the dryer. I think that the heat's bad for them. Of course, there are specific shoe dryers that you can buy, but I'm not sure my need to have dry shoes is greater than my need not to have more single-use devices in my house. I would recommend you can throw your shoes in the washing machine. Just put them in with some old towels and regular clothes washing soap, maybe even a dash of bleach or other sort of oxygenating stuff to kill the bacteria. Uh, Make sure to take out the insoles, loosen up the laces, same deal. It won't hurt the shoes, and then you just let them air dry. There's a good trick I saw online that I have not tried yet, but I think I will. So you take some coat hanger wire, and you hang the shoes 
on the front of a regular floor fan and you turn the fan on. That looks cool, but I'm not sure you'd want to do that in the house during, you know, those summertime runs when your shoes smell like dead goats. And finally, and I'm not kidding about this, there are some websites, some videos, that people are actually putting their wet shoes into rice to dry them. You know, like the old cell phone trick? Honey, did you put goat meat in the casserole? It has a bit of an earthy flavor to it. Don't have any idea what you're talking about. Must be the sauce. And by the time you're listening to this, I will and am back running again in my new hookahs, finishing up the 10-day course of antibiotics. And until next time, when I figure out a, a way to avoid training due to a hangnail, keep your feet clean and respect your toes. And now for today's featured interview. How do you deal with uncertainty and anxiety when your world is upended by the coronavirus pandemic? I've been a psychologist for 30 years working in emergency management, public health and disaster psychology. And I had to think seriously about that question for the entire country of New Zealand as we work towards eliminating COVID-19 earlier on in 2020. The lessons that I drew upon and that I pulled together, which we can all apply in our daily lives, are in my book, Steady. Full of easy-to-follow practical tools and tips, Steady can get you through any crisis or change of circumstance with your mental health intact. You'll learn how to deal with uncertainty, the psychological impact of empathy, both on ourselves when we offer it and to those who receive it along with practical ideas around introducing structure into your life and how this can help to reduce stress and contain feelings of anxiety. Steady is for anyone wanting to strengthen their capacity to ride the possible coming waves of COVID-19 yet to come, as well as life's general ups and downs with more calm, ease and a sense of groundedness. My name's Dr. Saab Johal and I live in Wellington. New Zealand. So, Sarb, Dr. Sarb, man, I've known you for uh, like 12 years. You were one of the early Twitter guys back when all the runners started to do that from around the world. Remember that? Yeah, I do. So that's uh, quite a while now, hey, Chris? Yeah. So uh, we finally meet in the flesh, in the protein form. So give (laughs) us the 200 words on who you are and what you do. So, yeah, I'm based in Wellington, New Zealand. I'm a psychologist. I've been a psychologist for over 30 years now, which is really quite scary to think about. And I've worked in the sort of intersection of emergency management, disaster psychology, public mental health, wellness, all that kind of stuff for the past sort of 15, 16 years. And long story short, it feels like the entirety of my professional training has been pointed towards this past sort of nine months that we've been experiencing around the world and will be experiencing for a while yet, I think. And I noticed, like I said, that you are the go-to expert in uh, the psychological impact of working from home, right? And all these related uh, impacts of when disaster strikes uh, any culture. This is a big one, the COVID thing. Give us sort of the roundup of what's the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. What's the solution and why is this different? Yeah. So I guess I'll go back to my first day of my clinical training, which is back in 2000. I've already been a psychologist for a while, but I remember our course director coming in 
And he said the major task of a psychologist is to help people to live with uncertainty. And that really resonated with me. I think I retrospectively thought that anyway, but he articulated in a way that actually became my core belief as a psychologist. And then if I fast forward back from then, 2000, to one night in March, the night before we went into a national lockdown here in New Zealand to deal with the coronavirus pandemic threat, we had it in the country at that point. And I said to my wife on the night before we entered into lockdown, I said, I think the next few months are going to be really, really tricky. And I think that I might get drawn down quite a few rabbit holes. What I want you to do is to remind me of my core purpose, and that is to talk about structure and to talk about empathy. And if I deviate from talking about those two core themes, I want you to take me aside and say, remember, this is what people need. People need a balance between structure, which is what they need when everything feels chaotic and uncertain. You need some order in order to start to structure what it is that you need to do. But you also need empathy. When it all feels really overwhelming and it feels like you're failing the entire time or your children do or your parents do or you feel like other people are thinking that you are, self-empathy then becomes really important too. So boiling it down is that actually what we need is to be quite disciplined in terms of how it is that we tackle the coronavirus pandemic. And it can feel like we've done, it's really, really hard at times um, to be that disciplined over an extended period of time. As humans, one of the things that's, again, the real problem is that we're great at problem solving, but not when we have, firstly, invisible threats. We're really good at stuff that's concrete and stuff that we can tangibly see, taste, smell, all that stuff. We can deal with that. But when it's invisible, we find it really difficult to deal with that as humans. And the second thing is if it's over a long time period. Okay, just look at something like climate change and how difficult we find it to change our behavior for something that we can just kick down the road, yeah. uh, seemingly for the next generation. Even two weeks is really hard for us to deal with. What are the consequences of our behavior now that could manifest in terms of our own symptomology and our own disease progression because of exposure that we've had to the pandemic for ourselves sure. or for our loved ones? Yeah, it's the marshmallow test, isn't it? We're all failing. It's interesting. The marshmallow test is actually a test of trust. It's not actually about delay gratification. It's do I trust the person that's telling me what it is that I need to do here, or do I think that they're going to take it away? So if you look at the marshmallow test, actually underprivileged kids don't tend to do so well on it because they don't necessarily trust that that marshmallow <laughs> is still going to be there later on. <laughs> and I think that that really, really reveal something about the other point of this triangle. It's structure, empathy, but it's also governance. It's also yeah. how is this being run yeah. and do we trust how it's being run? I think that's a really big point. Yeah, it's obvious you could just see the difference between where you are and where I am. But You're in New Zealand and I'm here in the United States, so you can see that lack of trust in the government. Yeah, that's interesting. I tried to take you down a rabbit hole, but you uh, countered nicely there. So I do notice, like you said, it's like going on a diet or something like that. People try to fix these problems using free will, and that's typically a really bad strategy. Not free will, but um, their willpower, right? Yeah. So trying yeah. to use willpower to get around these things that are sort of hardwired in your evolutionary biology is typically a losing battle, especially when it's this siege mentality after two months, three months, nine months, 10 months, Right. So you have to replace that. You have some proactive strategies to replace that with some actual discrete strategies and tactics and structure that 
take the willpower out of it, right? Because yeah. that's the same way you'd be successful in training for a marathon or losing 100 pounds, same strategies, right? Absolutely, Chris. I mean, one of the things, and I guess that's the structure that I'm talking about here, is that actually we can't just kind of leave it to chance and we'll figure it out on the day because there's a difference between optimism bias and this idea that actually we might gloss over some of the stuff that we kind of like need to negotiate and need to travel over in order to get to our endpoint, right? Often we can just say, here's the start, here's the finish. It's going to be easy sailing. I'm just going to get there, right? And if we approach a problem with that mindset, we're going to run into issues, but it's different to hope and hope is necessary in order to, for us to be able to see a future that is worth living. That's in line with what it is that we want to see in the world for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our communities or whatever. So we kind of need to balance between the optimism and the hope that will enable us to have that vision of a future, but be really structured and be able to break it down as to how we're going to get there. And if I just take the, like the coronavirus example, right? Often people will say, I use a mask. That's all I need to do. I don't need to do anything else. Or I wash my hands and I don't need to do anything else. But actually, if we think about it, we really need to take a systems approach, which is all the things at all times in order for us to protect ourselves. If we think about a slice of Swiss cheese that you might put on your burger, right? It's got holes in it. And I can poke a hole through that Swiss cheese and it's still cheese, but it's got a hole in it. But if I start layering up, Swiss cheese upon Swiss cheese upon Swiss cheese layer, then those holes aren't necessarily going to align. And we're hoping that they don't align. So any hole that you can stick your pencil through, your finger through, gets blocked by the next layer of Swiss cheese. Yeah. And that's how the protective measures in COVID work. And that's how running training plans work as well, right? It's like, okay, so this bit didn't work, but I'm still progressing because the next part of my training pattern took me forwards and protected what I've got and extended myself into the future a little bit as well. So yeah, totally agree with you. But it takes a different viewpoint, right? To get there. It takes a different, you have to have a sort of a longer time frame, which humans are bad at as well. Yeah. And it goes back to my earlier point, like even just thinking two weeks in advance, we discount that and we just say, yeah, you know what? That's two weeks later. I'm going to go out for a beer with my friends tonight. I'm going to have that steak in that indoor environment. I'm going to not bother with my run today or whatever it is I'm going to do because it's only two weeks down the line. It doesn't really matter. And I guess that the opening words of my book is a quote from William James. And it says, act as if what you do matters. It does It really does. Yeah. And the other side of this is people are suffering, especially through the holidays. They're getting some psychological stress, right? A lot of people talking about mental health these days. So how does that manifest? Yeah, that can show itself in all kinds of different ways, right? You kind of got the anxiety, which is the fear about what's going to happen in the future, okay? And that can also then morph almost into like a grief response, Because I think what people are now starting to realize now that we're deep into this is that some of their anticipated futures are things that they may have to start thinking about giving up or changing. And I think that that is a really odd experience that perhaps we're not used to. And lots and lots of people going through that at the same time across the planet as well. I can't travel anymore. Like I'm in New Zealand, used to travel a lot. We were chatting just before we came online and started recording. You were like, oh, you're in London, you're here. I haven't left the country in the entirety of last year because our borders are closed. I can't remember that happening since I was kind of like maybe a teenager. 
Yeah, me neither. Overseas at all. It's this is the longest me going without getting on an airplane in probably 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's just like a tiny little sliver as to kind of like how our lives have changed. But I think that what people are now starting to come to terms with is that, yeah, our lives have changed and they're perhaps going to stay that way for quite a while. And the life that we're going to have is not the life that we had. Yeah. And so there's loss involved in right. that as well. So you kind of get that grief feeling of like the future of what might have happened that is no longer going to happen, but also this kind of reminiscence and sense of loss of like, well, where did that life go and what's going to happen next? So you got this kind of loss and depressive kind of like feelings as well as the anxiety right. of the future and that worry too. So it's it's complex. So it's a classic stages of grief sort of thing, except it's with millions of people at the same time overlapping, which can cause some chaos. Yeah, absolutely right. The stages of grief thing. So if we think about some of the things that we have seen, like the bargaining right. of the, well, if I stay at home for four weeks, then the deal is that the COVID goes away. Right. And we've seen that actually that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So well, we, the angle we see, of like, you yeah, told me this was going to work, but now it didn't work. And so you see yeah. all of this being played out. A lot of denial, a lot of anger. Yeah. And then I heard this thing this morning where um, you were talking about structure and order and that sort of thing. But I heard someone say, we always talk about, especially with women, we talk about juggling our careers mm. or balancing our careers. And that visual is just so stressful, right? You're just setting yourself up for failure. You're going to be dancing and juggling your whole life, right? So yeah. it's almost the same thing applies here, right? Where people are just trapped in their fighting and it's really stressful. And I think that anxiety just drives people into depression. They curl up in a sleeping bag and and eat Cheetos all day. And I think that that's where we're leading towards here now is that actually it's the acceptance of this is a global pandemic that you're trying to do this juggling and this balancing in. So cut yourself some slack here in that this is like something that hasn't been dealt with since 1918 in any kind of real sense of of breath. And life has changed a lot. We expect a lot of ourselves, women, men, families, parents, whatever role that you are taking on, however hard you found it before, is probably going to be be harder now. And it tends to be the people who are less well off and had less opportunity that tend to be more badly affected by things like global pandemics. We know that or any kind of disaster, really. Yeah. And (laughs) so before we run out of time, um, you have solutions for all this, though. You have practical suggestions. So we've whined, or as you would say, whinged enough around these things. What do we do about it? The good news is that what we know from the research is that 80% of people who go through any single disaster emerge from it okay. Right. And, but there are certain things that need to be in place for that to happen. So the first thing is around security of accommodation, making sure that your costs can all get met. All of that basic problems of living stuff needs to be sorted out for people to be okay. The second thing that's really, really important is connection, social connection. And this is difficult, right? Because the way that we normally socially connect in everyday life, those opportunities we are less able to access. So we have to be imaginative, doing things like Zoom calls, like we're talking to now, are going to become the way and continue to be the way that we connect with people. And we need to kind of do that and connect with each other in imaginative ways to add that kind of spice and variety to our social lives. The other thing is thinking about ourselves individually is really what I call in my book, mastering your break. Because it's only by calming ourselves 
and really mastering how our brains work, that we're able to be creative and problem solve. Because when we are stressed and anxious about what's going on in front of us, we only use our primal brains, which is all about dealing with the threat. And it's essentially fight, flight, or freeze. And in order to bring all the other skills, all the other knowledge that we have online, all of this frontal cortex stuff, stuff that we have in the front of our brains, all gets shut down when we're stressed and anxious. It's only when we're in a calm state that all that stuff can come back online again and we can get creative and solve problems and then start to move forwards with our lives. So the key really is understanding what it is that you need to do in order to master your break so that you can start to move forwards again with your lives. So control or actively work on your mental state. It's simple things like actually slow, deep belly breathing has the impact of slowing down your heart rate, okay? And you only need to do that for a minute for it to start having an impact upon your heart rate. And when you can slow down your heart rate, essentially your fear, flight, and uh, fight centers in your brain starts to sense that the internal environment of your body is starting to change. So you don't seem as scared as you were anymore. So that means I can now divert your resources and bring your frontal cortex back online because you're not in a life-threatening situation anymore. That's what your brain is doing. And so by simply deep belly breathing for one minute, you can actually feel quite different and bring a sense of calmness and then a sense of vitality back, which you weren't experiencing just one minute before. It's a simple trick, but it's actually quite complex in terms of what it's doing and what it's freeing you up to be able to do. Right. Taking the time to do that. Yeah. Just one minute. You can make a really, really big difference. Yeah. I find uh, all those tools from that toolkit, right? So being grateful, right? Writing down the things that you're grateful about, journaling, all that stuff. And then a little bit of structure. I've become a lot more task-based in this Mm -hmm. environment versus I used to wing it a lot more. But just the nature of this, it helps to be task-based, right? To be more proactive in, in the tactical management. Anyhow, that's what I've learned. So what's the book called and where where and when can people find it? Uh, It's called Steady, Keeping Calm in a World Gone Viral. The subtitle is A Guide to Better Mental Health Through and Beyond the Coronavirus Pandemic. And you can find it pretty much anywhere. You'll definitely be able to find it on Amazon. It's available for pre-order now. And it will be published globally on January 22nd, 2021. All right. You'll send me the links, right? I will do. I will do, Chris. So I got to let you go. I got to jump to my next meeting. Sorry to cut you short, but it's good stuff. Hey, good to see you, Chris. And uh, and so what what have I been telling people today? Be happy, be safe, and be kind. And go well yourself too, Chris. All right. All right. Great talking with you. Yeah. Bye-bye. See you, Chris. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Life as performance art. Composing a life. The age of active wisdom. I listened to a very interesting interview of Mary Catherine Bateson, who is the daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, which frankly must make her crazy because Margaret Mead was the popular cultural anthropologist of the 60s and 70s, so that's all she probably ever hears. But Ms. Bateson, Dr. Bateson, has some really interesting takes on how to approach life, and I want to share some thoughts on this, as it may be handy to you because of your uh, New Year discovery process. The interesting part for me was this concept of life being a piece of performance art or improvisation. 
and maybe it's the romantic in me, but I like this metaphor better than the uh, goal-based, military-inspired life metaphor that we are commonly struck with. The reason I like it is that it deals with some of the fundamental flaws of the structured approach. The chiefest among those flaws, in my mind, is that everything can be proscriptively and rigorously controlled as you execute your way through life. That structured goal-based metaphor casts you as essentially the project manager of your life. Your life, it's a project. Once you understand the scope and the charter of that project, you cleanly execute the tasks with the available resources and march towards your goals. You break down any barriers with energy and verve until you reach success. And this approach considers life to be like a messy shelf that just needs to be organized, you know. Like that one where you keep the spices and you can never find the caraway seeds. Did I use all the caraway seeds? Or are they in this shelf full of all these little bottles somewhere? Like that. Why do most people follow this project management metaphor for life? This prescriptive approach. Well, because it has some advantages, of course. What a prescriptive approach has going for it is it's discreet. Most people really don't want to understand the bigger picture. They just want to be told what to do. What do I do right now to get two steps ahead of where I am? Because where I am is uncomfortable. Tell me the specific workouts I need to do to get to my race goal. It's very efficient. Once you have that discrete plan, all you have to do is show up every day and execute it. Saves you a lot of meandering about. Allows you to focus your energy. Do this today, that tomorrow, not the other things. But it also conforms to our cultural norms. Work hard. Be successful. Make money. Have an impact. You know the drill. If you're not a millionaire by the time you're 30, you're a failure. Where's your plan? Gotta have a plan. In essence, this is low risk, right? This method and metaphor, because it's the cultural norm. It's very hard to go against cultural norms. If you don't believe me, try walking your dog in a mankini. And you wear the mankini, not the dog. That would be cruel. There are inherent flaws in the structured approach. And the first is that it is predicated on the fact that you know where you're trying to get to. And in reality, it's very difficult to actually understand the desired scope and charter of this project we call life. I.e., what do I want to do with my life? It's especially hard to know that in advance or in enough detail and certainty to make the rest of the exercise work. And the second thing I would say is that life is messy. Life is nonlinear. Even if you have a discrete plan, trying to manage your life as if it is linear is like trying to shovel water against the tide. There has to be wiggle room to change direction and to deal with the inevitable stuff that life throws at us. And if I am allowed to pile on, I might say that a third thing the prescriptive approach to living lacks is joy. You're so wrapped up in being more efficient and effective on your way to those goals that you don't even notice when a butterfly lands on your nose. Or you march through your plan, achieve your goals, and realize, hey, you're not happy. Oops. Dr. Bateson uses 
Another metaphor, the metaphor of treating life like an improvisational performance. I think this sounds more real to life, to the chaotic nature of life. And she cautions not to wrongly assume that improv performances don't require practice. Just the opposite. The great improv artists practice and learn continuously to be able to perform that improv art in the moment. And I want you to think about how people talk about life. They talk about juggling or balancing work and family, work-life balance. What kind of image does that bring into your mind? It's quite stressful, isn't it? That image of juggling, trying to keep all the balls in the air while riding a unicycle on a tightrope over a pit of fire. So instead, we think of it as improv, as preparing ourselves to excel in the moment, to master the moments of truth. And that sort of changes the very nature of how you live. The drive to get the most out of yourself is still there. The practices to acquire mastery, they're still there. But you approach it with more abandon and more joy. And if you think about the people you know who seem to live life as water flows, to take joy in that flowing but also to be very accomplished. They're looked up to. They're magical, but they're also free from those cultural norms. And your next question might be, sounds good, Chris. How do I do that? Well, I mean, you can go listen to the interview. It's on being with Krista Tippett. Judge for yourself. But I have nothing prescriptive for you. That would be cheating. This is just the kernel of an idea. A thought. How would you live if you thought of your life as an improvisational art form to be played as opposed to a project to be worked? Could it make everything a bit more joyful? I don't have the answers. I'm just asking the question. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have holed up in our home offices for almost an entire year and most certainly through the end of... Episode 4-447 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'll tell you some stories to take you out, but first remember, remember to go listen to my new podcast, The Apocalypse Serial, After the Apocalypse. Like it, write a review, forward it to your friends, share it on social every day, every hour of every day, please. It was uh, a busy week back at work this last week. This seemed to be the week when everyone showed up back from vacation, looking to get stuff done. And since I wasn't running, it was weirdly okay, because I had one less thing to do. I've been at this new job for a year now. How about that? I guess I have to stop calling it a new job. I'm grateful, though, to have made that decision to move back into a bigger company last year. It doesn't look like we'll be getting out of lockdown anytime soon. I have been eyeballing an April event, but not sure I'll want to get on an airplane, or they'll let me, and not sure I'll be able to visit my headquarters office. I'm also feeling a weird, maybe I don't have what it takes to run an ultra anymore kind of feeling. I only made it through a week of heavier training before I broke myself this time. So I guess I'm feeling a bit mortal, which isn't a great feeling. 
maybe it has something to do with the psychology of the apocalypse. Maybe I should get on Dr. Sarb's couch for a while. Ironically, my new pair of hokas showed up the same day I had to go to the clinic for the infected toe. So the first chance I got to run in them was yesterday. I downgraded to the Challenger ATRs from the Speed Goats because I just can't stomach paying $180 for a pair of shoes. We have to talk these people into sponsoring me, don't you think? The the new Challengers, uh, they seem different, though. They seem much lighter, sort of smaller in profile than the older versions. And the outsole seems stiffer, not like gummy and chewy like the old ones. So... And of course, the toe box is a bit roomier, which God knows we need that. I did end up partially breaking those $30 UBI Bluetooth headphones I talked about a couple months ago. I think I bought them in October, September, sometime around then. They lasted about two months. And I say partially because the left ear still works, which is actually okay, because mostly I listen to podcasts. So there you go. Free from me, another million-dollar idea. Make an athletic version of those single-earpiece Bluetooth headphones. Huh? You'll sell a million of them. Let me take you out with a home office story, and let me give you a little warning here. It might be a little unsettling for those of you with an aversion to rodents. There are mousetraps involved. If that's triggering for you, you might want to skip ahead to the end. One of the mornings this week, every morning I carry my coffee and avocado toast up to my office to read the news on my computer every morning. And one morning I was doing that, and I notice what I think are sesame seeds from the toast on the pad in front of the keyboard where I eat my toast and drink my coffee. And I almost dropped it back into my avocado before I realized they weren't sesame seeds, they were most turds. Now, it's been a low mouse invasion year for us because we got new garage doors in December. But I left the garage doors open last weekend whilst clearing the snow. How many people do you know who use the word whilst? I don't know that many. Anyhow, I think to myself, crap, there's a mouse living in my office crawling around on my desk eating the the crumbs from my breakfast. So I set a couple of traps along the baseboard, and I kept on going with my day. Then my big boss calls. Can you be on a call in 15 minutes where the corporate blah, blah, blah is talking about the blah, blah, blah? Okay, I can do that. Luckily, I'm showered and dressed at this point. So I'm at my stand-up desk on the video call, acting like I have some sort of intelligence, knowledge, and authority, when snap, the trap goes off but a foot and a half from where I'm standing. But it doesn't kill the mouse right away. So here I am. I'm stuck having to talk to these people on this video call while the mouse is thrashing about on the floor next to me. Kind of a strange situation, and they never knew. I never broke character. I never said, hey, there's a mouse. (laughs) Never did that. Never broke character. So say what you want about this remote work. It comes with new experiences. I think the biggest challenge of extended home arrest here in the apocalypse is just the sameness of it, the Groundhog Day nature of it. But I mean, that can be comforting to people as well. It can lead you to feel 
uninspired and pointless sometimes. And when that happens, I think we just have to keep moving, right? Like Dr. Sarb suggests, you have to make up rules that simplify things for your overtaxed brain. One useful trick I found is to commit blocks of time, like 20 or 30 minutes is a good block of time when you're having trouble focusing. Shift the focus from I need to do this thing to I'm going to work on this one task for 30 minutes nonstop. It's the old Pomodoro method, adding structure, it works. And, and I have also rejoined Twitter after a few years away. As always, if you want to see me, I am C-Y-K-T Russell. I've actually still got about 13,000 plus followers. I tweet about running stuff. I retweet from the back catalog of a thousand plus articles I've written on my website, runrunlive.com. But I mostly make snide comments and tweet Grateful Dead lyrics. So follow me and we will exchange snark. Okay, my friends, that's it for me. Whether you feel like a rock star or the mouse... Let's make 2021 the best year yet by showing up and doing the work and bringing the joy. And hopefully, I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And it's especially hard to know that in advance or in enough detail, and certain... <laughs> I knew I was going to blow that.